Welcome to the Belltale Rugby Podcast with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendry. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Belltale Rugby. Unfortunately, this week, we're just going to be getting right into it as Ulster's season is officially over after a shock home defeat to Connacht on Friday night. That's coming up first thing, but we'll also be chatting a wee bit about some local games, including Balna Hinch winning the Senior Cup and Dingannon failing to gain promotion in the All-Ireland League. I'm joined as always by our Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley, and our sports reporter, Adam McKendry. So you know what I'm going to ask you both, obviously. Johnny, I'll start with you. Uh, Ulster have had a second place finish to their season in the URC with nothing really to show for it. What went wrong? I suppose if you want to look at the uh, very much on Friday night, what went wrong was the breakdown <laughs> in the discipline. Uh, both were terrible. In a more overarching sense, and we'll probably dig into that a little bit later, it feels like there were a number of things that went wrong over the course of the season and really just a campaign that never, I suppose, sparked into any form of life, really. It just never, it almost felt like all year you were just waiting for something to happen. And I think that probably contributed an awful lot to uh, what was a fairly stunned atmosphere at the end, because as it slowly sort of dawned on people that the season was over, it was nothing was going to happen. It was just, uh, I suppose you don't, you don't want to be too dismissive of, you know, things like Tom Stewart coming through even in latter weeks, um, Dave McCann and Harry Sheridan as well, but it just sort of feels like a year where it was a write-off, basically. Do you agree, Adam? <sighs> Essentially, yeah. You know, I feel like if, if we were sitting at the start of the season, you said that this was how it was going to go, you'd automatically want to just get to the end of it and go into next season because re- really like what what have Ulster done this season that you're sitting there and thinking they have made progress or there's something to take into next season that they didn't already have to take in from last season the answer really is nothing you know they've they've moved up to second in the regular season standings but they've been knocked out in the quarterfinals at home you know for all the talk of it's great that we've managed to get up to second we've now got home advantage they didn't take advantage of it that's the the whole point was this was supposed to ease their path into the final and if anything it worked against them so I I would say like there obviously it's not a complete write off you know there are certain things like Tom Stewart coming through and uh, the the fact that they did manage to bounce back somewhat from that sort of December slump that's that is at least something that they can look at and go okay how did we do that how did we move on from that but in terms of the overall look at things. It, it's it's just been a season where I think Ulster have stood still, if not taken a slight step back. And Friday night was just sort of the culmination of a season that I think a lot of people just wanted to be over. You know, even with all the optimism that they could reach the final, they're just sort of, whenever that final whistle went, there was just sort of that such feeling of flatness that it was just like a season that nobody quite enjoyed is over. And the fact that it happened in such a dismal way, I think, sort of reflects just 
the general feeling around Ravenhill uh, at the moment. Well, speaking about Friday, um, and I think it's fair to say the game finished 15 to 10 and Connacht maybe could have even won more emphatically than they did. So that's probably even more dejecting. They should have been out of sight. Like they should have had a try whenever Tom Farrell made that break in the first half and for some reason only known to him didn't pass to Keelan Blade. I think they had another player on the outside that he could have passed to anyway. So even if Blade wasn't in, they had someone else uh, ready to run it in. The number of handling errors, unenforced handling errors that Connacht made that could have resulted in tries. Like, Alan O'Connor, I think, summed it up best afterwards and that if Ulster had come back and won that game, they were stealing that. There, There's absolutely no doubt that Connacht deserved to win that game. And even the fact that Ulster had a chance to steal it at the end was more than they deserved because Connacht should have had that game won a long time before they did. Well, I know like Johnny as well, this week you've been writing in your column about overall what went wrong and, and just specifically focusing on Friday's game and analysing that. Was it just a case of complete breakdown in confidence from the get-go? Because we've been talking about potential unhappiness behind closed doors in the camp and stuff like that. And I don't think anyone... I know last week we were saying that you guys didn't think that... Everyone sort of expected Ulster to win. But a lot of people expect them to win by like nine or more points. And you, you both didn't actually agree with that. Um, but did you ever foresee this? <laughs> no, as I say, I thought they would win within a score, even like before the game. I think there were de- <laughs> you were talking to some people on Friday night going into the stadium who were definitely an awful lot more confident. Um, but saying that, I still fully expected Ulster to win and to be preparing for a semi-final and you know that could be a part of it now obviously Ulster would never admit it themselves but you know in the pre-match press conference like I asked Dan McFarland like how does the psychology change when you're playing a team that you've already beaten twice this season and you know we saw the reverse of this last year when Munster beat Ulster twice during the season and then lost in the quarterfinals so you do wonder, was there a sense of Ulster themselves thinking that they were going to win, you know? Complacency. It was just a very flat performance and it was a bizarrely flat performance. And whenever you get that type of performance in what is one of the biggest games of the season, and I think we have to acknowledge the fact that if you look at the European games, sorry, the European pool stages and the two knockouts in both Europe and the ERC, like Ulster have you would say those are Ulster's six biggest games of the season. They've lost five of them. So that speaks to something. Mm-hmm. And to be as poor, essentially, as they were on Friday and as flat as they were on Friday in what was a game that, while we didn't expect to define their season going in, ultimately will define their season because they've lost it. So for that to be the case speaks to something being wrong. But we did see this coming to an extent. You know, they were flat against Dragons. They were flat against Edinburgh. We were hoping that some but those are like flat occasions, if you know what I mean. They're run-of-the-mill ERC games against but, bad teams. This was but, a playoff game. But, but you have to build into the playoffs. You, you can't expect to play two flat games and then suddenly completely turn it around for the playoffs. Even in flat games like that you've got to find a way to get yourself in that playoff mindset because what we saw from Ulster was two flat games two flat games where they struggled at the breakdown may I add and I think that's 
not a coincidence that they then struggled against Connacht and it's probably how Andy Friend looked at those two games and went Ulster struggled against uh, uh, the Dragons breakdown and then whenever you had uh, Hamish Watson targeting their breakdown for Edinburgh they were also a weakness now Ulster were able to get past the Dragons in Edinburgh because neither side one had anything to play for and two aren't as good as Connacht but as soon as they come up against a team who are able to make Ulster's mistakes pay they're caught out and I thought like you don't need me to tell you that Seamus Hurley Langton and Connor Oliver had two outstanding games like Hurley Langton was a man possessed and we were choking in the in the press centre afterwards you know someone find an Irish granny from him and get it <laughs> get him into the Ireland squad as quickly as possible but you know <clears throat> The, the signs were there that this was going to be the way that Ulster were going to play. It was going to take a lot, and it wasn't impossible for them to turn it around and play good rugby again for that one-off game. But the signs were there that Ulster were kind of meandering towards the playoffs without really sparking into life. And whenever it came to the game itself, they couldn't raise their game whenever they needed it to. And that's a concern in itself that, okay, I, I admit that, you know, some teams, you know, Leinster can turn it on at, at the flip of a hat. But for a lot of teams, you've got to get yourself into that playoff mindset a few weeks in advance. And Ulster just haven't. Is it the case, you know, were you both content with Dan Farrell's team selection? Um, I know, like, Michael Sadlier for us had been doing, as he always does, the Ulster ratings after the game. And the majority of them got fours. Um, some people might think, I don't know, that's harsh. Some people might think that's a, a bit too kind, given how how they did play, um, you know, what, not to put specific blame on any one player or anything, but where, where did the focus go wrong or were there any bright moments from it, do you think, Johnny? I thought Robert Balakoon was good. I don't know what Michael gave him, whether he gave him a four as well. Um, I think he got a four. The highest anyone got was a six. And then I noted that. That was Nick Timoney. <laughs> he got a six. Was that because he, he was off before things got really, really dire? Um, I mean, look, I thought Balakum was good, but I thought Balakum was good in a way that almost um, was frustrating in a way because <laughs> he was good. And you're looking at that performance and being like, not why haven't we seen that more this season, but you see somebody as dangerous as Balakum, and he was the one sort of forcing the issue. He was the one trying to open Connacht up with offloads and that was something that I thought also needed to do so much more of because when your breakdown is a mess you know you you have to keep the ball alive more and that's what Balakun did but it needed to be across the board because essentially at some point you had to look at that game and say we're not going to fix this. This is a terminal issue <laughs> across this 80 minutes. We So at that point, you need to minimise the breakdowns. It's obviously more difficult by the fact that you're also trying to minimise the amount of scrums that you have because at that stage, you're down to your fifth choice tight head. So I think in a way, those glimpses that we saw from Balakun are probably something that we've prob been talking about for an awful lot of the year of like, that was plan B, but we didn't see plan B enough and plan A didn't work. So that's why I would, why I'm sort of saying that it was frustrating that Balakun was good because even above the fact that 
we've probably missed seeing that this season because he has been so impacted by injuries, as a lot of those um, guys in the back line have, whether it's caused him to miss time or not. Like, you can't help but look back to this time last year when Ulster were tearing Munster apart in the quarterfinals and, you know, had done a number home and away on Leinster, Claremont and Northampton and just think, you know, where were those performances this year? And I suppose a lot of what made those um, performances stick out in the memory were the exciting rugby that Ulster played and whether it be through injuries or whether it be through design and going to the mall so often, we didn't see it. We didn't see it again on Friday and... Friday was the day calling out for it, given how Connacht denied Ulster access to the 22 and repelled them all whenever Ulster did try and get the set piece going. You look at that back line that Ulster have out there. It's not all that dissimilar to the back line that they had out against Northampton last year. You put Stockdale in for McElroy, you put McCluskey in for Murr, and you put Cooney in for Doak. All of those selections are not injury related and arguably make your team better. Like Stockdale coming back in from McElroy, the form that Stockdale's in at the moment, makes you better. McCluskey in for Murr makes you better. Cooney in for Doak is about a 50-50 call at the moment, but Cooney's probably in better form right now, so he makes you better. So you think about the performance that that backline put in against Northampton which is probably one of the best backline performances I've ever seen from an Ulster team. And do you think that the one that they put out on Friday, the, the backline that they selected is arguably better? Why can they not put in a similar performance? And it's exactly what you say, Johnny. The breakdown just was not good enough. And Dan, Dan made the point afterwards that he felt that Ulster's back row you know, isn't as mobile as Connacht's. And therefore, can't get to the breakdown faster, and you have to, you know, you you have to sort of match that, and you've got to try and play smarter than them. You've got to play quicker as well. You know, you, I, I don't, I don't buy the whole, you know, O'Connor's back or more mobile. You know, we're talking split seconds here. That's play. You've got to play smarter. You've got one of the smartest rugby players in the world in Dwayne Vermeulen playing number eight. You've got a guy who I think is quite quick in. Nick Timoney, who I don't think you can really say is all that slower than Hurley Langton or, or Oliver Prendergast. And you've got McCann, who is still sort of up and coming, but is a good player and has sort of played his way into the team over the last couple of weeks. I just think Ulster weren't as hungry for it as, as Connacht were on, on that occasion. I think, you know, the back row really typified the the sort of desire levels in, in the two teams. I think Connacht sniffed an upset and they really went for it and they got rewarded. I think to, to take your first point of what you know, why you comparing this year's backline to last year's backline, and it's very similar. And obviously, the guys are coming and were upgrades. I think you do have to acknowledge just how much all of those players have been impacted by injury this year. So Stockdale, while he's come very good in recent weeks, took a long time to get over that injury. Understandable given how bad an injury it was. Balakun barely played through hamstring injuries. Really, McCluskey was coming back off. Calf niggle, I think it's a different calf niggle than the one that impacted him through the tail end of the Six Nations, but um, the same the same muscle, as it were. Hume, you know, I saw just when I was coming to the office this morning and posting on Instagram just with one word caption of tough, which I think probably 
he's using to sum up his season. Like it was a very difficult year for him coming back off that injury. Laurie struggled with injuries um, at different points. And I think, yeah, you do have to wonder, was it a case of all those guys just never really clicked, never really moved through the gears because of injuries? But I think you touched on something else interesting of you got to play smarter. And like I don't really remember too many teams coming up after beating Ulster and just so openly discussing their game plan. Mm. You know, Connor came up and they're like, yeah, well, we notice how, I'm paraphrasing here, but notice how under-resources, under-resourced Ulster's rocks are out wide, so we went after them there. That worked out. And we know how big their mall is, so we denied them that access point. Like, to just come up and say this was our blueprint and it worked... It's quite bold. It's quite stark. Mm-hmm. You don't often see it, and but I suppose it, that lends to the idea that you know were they just out thought. Well, it's it's a real indictment on how you can stifle Ulster by doing two things. Now, I I appreciate there are more facets to this than just you know that's that was their entire game plan. I'm sure Andy Friend didn't walk in on Monday morning and go, "Here's two points. Do that. And we win the game." Job done, but, see you Friday. <laughs> see you in Cape Town. Um, but, you know, it, it, those are the two key points. Hit the rocks on the, edge of the, on the edge of the pitch and stop them all. Now, we've known that stopping them all takes away Ulster's biggest weapon all season. It's no secret. You watch If you watched every single one of Ulster's games this season, you would come away very obviously knowing that the mall is their strength. And you take that away, you take away... I, I don't even want to try and guess, but it's got to be somewhere in the region of 50% of their tries. Like, the, the well, Ulster score so in, many. In terms of launching from a line-out, 50 of their 75 ERC tries, so 66% of their tries start from the line-out. And that's not solely mall tries, but starting from the line-out. But the thing was, Ulster barely fired a shot in this game until about the 65th minute. Ulster... Basically, Connacht barely had to work in this game. And that's I think that's the more concerning thing. If you came away from this game... And you said Ulster fought tooth and nail. It was end to end. Ulster just could, they just couldn't find a way across. Connacht's defense was incredible. Ulster barely caused them any problems. And the, to go out with such a whimper, I think, is what will leave such a sour taste. I think any fan could come away from a game thinking to themselves, my team gave it all I could. They were just beaten by the better team. And if that's what happens, then you just got to hold your hands up and say, yeah, that's it, it just wasn't our day. We've just got to accept that and we move on to next season. It was the fact that whenever they came to their biggest game of the season, and you can argue that the European last 16 game was their biggest game of the season. I, I think this one was because this was the one they had more of a realistic chance of winning. Whenever you come to the biggest game of your season, to go an hour of that game and not even fire a shot, you got to be asking some serious questions as to where was your plan B? Where was your plan C? Also, we're getting beaten up at the breakdown from early in the first half. Where was the change to fix that? It never came. You know, Ulster, Ulster managed to find parity in the breakdown whenever it was too late. You know, you, you had to make a change early. Where was the change in the scrum? They made the change at half time and things didn't improve. So at least they tried something there. But the fact was... 
Ulster just had no answers to what Connacht were putting in front of them and they left it too late to make their comeback. Saying that, they'll need to focus on plan, plans B and C for next season. Also, just to confirm, Michael did give Nick Timoney and Rob Balagreen sixes and then Tom Stewart as well whenever he came on because he did his utmost to change it. Just to just confirm that for anyone wondering. Um, but then, obviously, like what you're talking about there, Adam, Johnny, you mentioned it too, the fact that there was no plan B or that it wasn't executed very well by the entire team whenever it was needed. Um, Ulster are nine points better now than they were in the ERC last year. Where where do they go from here? Where does Don McFarlane go from here? Um, I know, was it the Ulster press release last Thursday? There's at least 10 players that are, are set to leave. Probably more will go. Um, what, in, what, in your humble opinions, needs to change? I think there probably needs to be something of a reset, whether it be culturally or in terms of style. I think one of the things that Dan McFarlane did really, really well when he first came in was instigate that cultural reset. But an element of this will be a smaller squad because I think we talked about this last week. Like There there were too many players in that squad this year not playing and that's bad for the atmosphere. There are positions where you can't help but have a sort of emergency break glass option but in general there were too many players not getting enough game time and I think that press release that we saw last week speaks to that because you know you've got 10 players on that release there's more that are not going to be in the squad and then you've only got two players coming in at present so seven of those players that are leaving in that press release featured on Friday night too yeah I did see an awful lot of people complaining about that. I think it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, you're not going to drop Dwayne Vermeulen, Jeff Tamagall and Rory Sutherland because it's potentially their last game, you know. So I suppose the context of that has to be that some of those players were always going to play. And, you know, you look at somebody like Jordy Murphy, you know, Jordy Murphy's last game for Leinster, he won a European Cup, you know. Um, but I do think it's very interesting. You mentioned team selection earlier, Neve. Like, I think it's interesting, you know, what it says to Ethan McRory, who will be needed next year, or Aaron Sexton, or Ben Moxham, that they didn't feature in this game when, say, Craig Gilroy was leaving. And that's not to denigrate Craig Gilroy in any way. Obviously, he's played over 200 times for Ulster and uh, given them some great moments. But just, I suppose, what damage that does to players' confidence. And you can make the same case for, you know, Harry Sheridan and Jordy Murphy. Like, well, Harry, you could put him instead of Carter as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. And... You know, it's it's not in hindsight. Sheridan is the type of player that I thought would have been included in that 23. That was probably the main omission for me. I don't think there was anything particularly unusual about the about the starting 15 whenever you're talking about team selection. But um, Well, again, Sheridan, you know, I could have seen him starting at blindside flanker instead of McCann. Now, I, again, that's, that's a 50-50 call for me. You know, I... I 
think McCann has played himself into that six jersey over the last couple of weeks but if Sheridan had started I wouldn't have been surprised it was more that Sheridan wasn't involved at all um I I thought the I thought the six and 20 would have been Sheridan McCann uh, either or and then obviously Marcus Ray is the the big talking point I suppose post game because if you uh are completely undone by the breakdown in a knockout game. And I suppose you're, would we describe him as most natural seven? Is that a fair way to describe him? Or I would say biggest so, turnover threat maybe? But even whenever he plays, it's still Timoney at seven and Ray at six. So you you can have them both playing the same role and that would have helped because you would have had two guys targeting the breakdown uh, and that would have negated some of the impact of Harley Langton and, and Oliver, but... They've not found the right balance at the breakdown all year. No, they haven't. And they just haven't found the right balance in the back row either. You know, they've... Vermeulen was obviously going to be your eight, and Timoney was always going to be your seven, but they've chopped and changed so much. Like, even whenever it looked like Sheridan had settled down into that six jersey, all of a sudden it's taken off him, and... Look, we're not privy to exactly what goes on behind the scenes and what happens in training. You know, maybe McCann's training the lights out every single week. But it just sort of seemed like they'd finally found that settled back row of, of six, seven, eight of Sheridan, Timoney and Vermeulen. And then they change it up again. McCann comes in for a bit, then Ray comes in for a bit, and then it's back to McCann. It just never seemed like they they found that right mix. And, you know, going into next season years you you look at someone as hasn't played a lot of eight for Exeter he primarily plays blindside flanker is that where you're going to put him and you're going to move McCann to eight do you move Timoney to eight and put Ray into seven where does Sheridan fit into all of this is yours going to come in and play eight you know the you could see whenever he signed he hadn't played primarily eight for uh for the uh, Sharks and then Ulster brought him in and played him at eight so we don't know what their plans are for him next season but it it just looks like Ulster are trying a lot of things in the back row but not actually sticking with anything to see if that's what what's right and it cost them in in the biggest game of their season it's a double-edged sword like because if things are going well then selection headaches and inverted commas are a sign of strength and depth and when things are going badly, they're signing muddle thinking. So, but but would we have said that Ulster making all these changes was a sign of strength and depth, or would we have said that it like I I don't think anybody's ever looked at Ulster chopping and changing their back row and going look at the strength of depth there. No, but you know what I mean. So like Ryan Baird pushing for a place in the Leinster back row is a sign or is a sign of strength and depth, whereas. With Ulster, it's a sign that they're, I suppose, searching for something whenever they keep inserting these guys in. But um, I know, I mean, look, I agree with you entirely. Like, I think um, one of the big issues going into next year is going to be getting that balance right because it's been something that we've spoken about in various podcasts. It's something that we've asked Dan McFarland about. And it's essentially the answer this year was Vermeulen, Timoney, and somebody else. And it never looked like they found what they deemed to be a satisfactory answer. And obviously Vermeulen won't be there, which is going to impact an awful lot about the way you play, I think, because 
it's very easy to look at Vermeulen and say, um, you know, he doesn't carry in the way that he did when he was 27. But equally, I think so much of, or a good chunk of what they're doing mall-wise has come from him in bad games like the Glasgow game back in February when he wasn't there. It was very noted in the mall. But equally, there will be people saying, well, maybe that's no bad thing if they're less reliant on the mall because then they'll have to have this sort of plan B, which it hasn't really seemed has been implemented at any point this year. It is actually interesting. And I was having this discussion with somebody over the weekend, you know, how much are Ulster going to miss Dwayne Vermeulen? And I think the honest answer is, and I, I hate not being able to give an answer, but the honest answer is, we won't know until we see how Ulster try to set up next season because if they do try and play exactly the same way that they have been right now, they're obviously going to miss him because he's such an integral part of that. I think one of the things that they've actually got from Vermeulen is very timely interjections at timely moments. You know, he comes up with a very key turnover at a key moment and he obviously as as Johnny mentioned he's a set piece savant like he he's probably one of the best set piece operators in world rugby so if Ulster keep trying to do exactly that Dave Yours is not the same kind of player you're going to have to ask somebody else to step up into that Vermeulen role and maybe it is yours maybe they ask yours to come in and sort of be that Vermeulen but that'll require an adjustment on yours part or, you would like to think there's been a bit of IP left by Vermeulen, though, you know. Mm-hmm. You well, know, exactly. They, they've banked that, but... Like, I just think they'll look to yours as a carrier and Kitchoff as a carrier, and I think that's... They need to. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. That's what they need to, because, you know, well, who, they who, haven't had Henderson all season, yeah. really, you know, apart from, what, completely coincidental, but, like, Henderson's only time in the team this year coincided with the bad run in December and January. So we haven't seen the impact of Ian Henderson, but obviously they miss him as a carrier. And then so much is foisted upon Stuart McCluskey. And when you only have one, I suppose, plus carrier in your team, you can see how he gets targeted. And we probably Mm. saw that on Friday night. I don't want to get too far into our, like looking ahead to next season. Cause I know we want to do that next week, but if if you look sometime over the next five and a half years, (laughs) (laughs) we have a lot to discuss over the next five. But if, if you look at Ulster's pack on Friday night, who were your ball carriers in that pack? And you, you you've been making that point, but who who literally list who you were sort of turning to as your ball carriers in that pack? Probably Treadwell, maybe Timoney, McCann. You and how many of them were actually effective whenever they needed to be? None of them. You know, Stewart came on and added a bit of impetus. You can say he is a better ball carrier than Rob Herring is. You can also maybe say that, you know, hitting a few tired shoulders maybe helped a little bit as well, but he added a bit. But you put Kitchoff into that pack, you put years into that pack, you bring Henderson back and you hope he stays fit for a while. Like, Ulster's pack next season does look like it has a bit more bite in the loose than it has in previous years, which is a plus. It is just how much is the mall going to be affected by that and how much is the set piece going to be affected by that. If Ulster can retain their mall strength with Vermeulen going, then I think your pack actually looks a lot more 
rounded than it does this season. But that's all dependent on them all. And I think it's one of the things that we've seen Roddy Grant get his contract extension and I think that's good. I think he has done well since he joined Ulster. But that this is where he now needs to earn his money. You know, he needs to be the one who steps up and says, All right, we've lost the guy on the pitch. Who's our leader? And really challenge the players, who's going to step up and take that position now and then lead that from behind the scenes? So it's an interesting sort of area of transition for Ulster. And the most interesting thing for me actually is because of the lack of games that are going to be played during the World Cup, you're going to see a lot of Ulsters pack there next season. So there's a lot of time for them to gel. There's a lot of time for them to get this right. There's a lot of pressure on them to get it right. On a different aspect, Johnny, you said in your column sort of like a lot of onus needs to be put in restoring Ravenhill's reputation as a, f- a fortress really for, for visitors coming up. You were both there on Friday. Um, I know you were saying, Johnny, some people were going in maybe a bit over- overconfident about how Ulster were going to do, but um, I can only imagine the whole place was deflated afterwards. But in terms of the amount of people there and the atmosphere, um, that's something you think that needs to change then? Yeah, and it starts with the players. Like, um, you know, I was talking to somebody um, who, you know, would have played in Ravenhill during what would be seen as the grind and the atmosphere's heyday when it also were a bad team, but it was a difficult place to come for good teams. And sort of saying that, you know, the difference now is that the crowd needs something to respond to, whereas in the past um, they were there from the get-go, if you know what I mean. But like... This sounds like a real back-in-my-day argument. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, because it's not the fans' fault, because it's just, it's changing demographics of the way people engage in sport, or sorry, engage with sport, um, people who attend sport, um, what they're looking for from the experience. You know, it's it's all of these things, but it starts and ends with the players, really, because Ulster lost too many home games this year. Like, and to lose, you know, so much of the, let's say Pro 14 season, so much of the URC <laughs> season is geared towards home advantage. Like, we saw that for the last, like, three months. You know, we were talking about are Ulster going to finish second or they're going to finish top four. You know, how many home games are they going to get themselves in the playoffs? That doesn't mean anything if your home record isn't good enough and Ulster's home record hasn't been good enough. This is a team that we saw go two years unbeaten at home now. Admittedly, there was a chunk of um, COVID in there, so there wasn't games as many as there would be, but they still set Ulster's modern era, professional era record for games unbeaten at home. Going from the loss to Connacht, ironically, in 2018 through to Toulouse in 2020. Each Irish province came up here and won this year, Connacht in a knockout game. Last year, we saw Ulster lose to Toulouse, um, not a vintage Toulouse team by any stretch of the imagination, at home when they had a head start on aggregate. And I think that's a big thing. You know, the same goes for Europe as the ERC. The pool stages of that competition are all about getting home advantage. 
But home advantage, and this is something that Ulster said last week before the game, like home advantage means, or earning home advantage means nothing if you don't use it. And at the end of the day, Ulster didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, looking elsewhere in the province, an emphatic 29 second half points ensured that Ballon Hinch claimed the Bank of Ireland Senior Cup as they defeated Queen's University 32 to 15 to lift the trophy for the fifth time in their history. Um, was that another shock win, do you think, Adam? Because you know, Queen's had the students had retained or were looking to retain the title. I mean, you look at, you know, Hinch are a Division 1A team and uh, Queen's obviously have, have had such an amazing season down in uh, down in 2A, but there is still a gap, you know, as, as much as Queen's have had an amazing season, Hinch are playing at a, at a level two rungs up than Queen's. So when you, you look at some of the players that... Uh, Hinch have at their disposal, you know, a lot of ex-Ulster players and uh, a, a lot of very talented guys. And off the season that they've had, you know, all, all right, look, they haven't won as many games as, as Queens have, and they haven't uh, they haven't finished as high in the table as Queens have. But you know, finishing mid-table in one A is a significant achievement, given that. Ulster teams have traditionally struggled over the last few years to simply stay in 1A, let alone sort of be pushing towards the, the back end of the playoffs. So, um, no, like Hinch are having a great time at the moment and uh, I think they're, they're a team that are really sort of pushing up and you saw that on the, in, in the Senior Cup final there where they just managed to uh, to get over the line there and... Uh, very impressed with how they've sort of put things together and, and the work that they're doing. And um, I, th- I think, you know, it's not much of a shock that, that they won, but credit to Queens for pushing them all the way. And what a season they've had. I think you you got to give them a lot of credit for, for what they've managed to achieve uh, down at the dub there and looking forward to seeing what they're doing next season, especially with this new uh, connection they have with Ulster. I can't remember exactly what they've called it. Is it like a pathway or, or something? The, something very press release Yeah, like a, like very, an apprenticeship very press release <laughs> But, you, you know, whenever... You look at some of the teams, you know, like Terranier College, Cork Con, you know, there are links there where players can, you know, go into an academy and do their, uh, or get their education alongside, you know, pursuing rugby. And I think for Ulster, one of the things that they do try and do from, from talking to people within the academy is they try to encourage players to be more than just rugby players, you know, get your education, don't don't just sit here and have rugby as your your one and only thing. So to have this link where you can have a lot of the academy guys going and playing and trying to get their experience with Queen's, a, a club that is very much on the up, as we have seen, then it can only work well. So a lot of encouraging things going on down at the dub and uh, very excited to see what they can do next season, even even though commiserations on this uh, this heartbreak. Throughout the province as well, uh, Ballyclare won the Junior Cup, defeating Enniskillen. And then promotion is not to be for Dingyanan after playoff agony against the Bohemians. So they fell short in their bid to win promotion to Division 2A of the All-Ireland League. Um, they lost by 20 to 16. What what was Dingyanan's issue, Johnny, do you think? Or is this something that they can work on next season? Just, just as a whole, Um Okay, no, I think that they had a good, a good season, a very good season actually. Um, they were, you know, they wouldn't have been hotly tipped for promotion, um, really. And then 
you're always up against it, um, especially having to travel that far as well. Um, it's an away game and a half down there, like so. Um, <laughs> no, I think they had a good season, I and mean, as part of a, I suppose a wider trend of a number of good seasons throughout. Also, you know, we saw Adam mentioned Queens getting up there, you know, City of Armagh and Stonians, um, perfect season where they didn't <laughs> drop a single point all year. You know, um, it's been an encouraging year. Throughout the All Ireland Leagues, um, Clogger Valley, of course, well, mm. um, yeah, all the good well, Tyrone teams. When, <laughs> yeah, when was the last time? When was the last time you saw three All Ireland divisions topped by Ulster County? Or sorry, yeah, Ulster Counties topped by Ulster clubs, and one uh, another Ulster club going for promotion, and another Ulster club finishing just outside the playoff spots in one A, like Ulster Club Rugby. I don't think has ever had like such a well-rounded season. Like there's there's probably been seasons in the past, and apologies for my for my sort of lack of historical knowledge, but there's probably been better seasons in the past in terms of you like more clubs further up the the tiers. But in terms of like success measured over the individual leagues, this is probably one of the most successful years that Ulster Club Rugby has ever had. Mm-hmm. The coverage of it is really good. Belfast Hagar after Cruden UK as well. Through that in, Michael, Michael does a great job. <laughs> I mean, we've got to give him a shout out. Like Michael does a superb job at keeping on top of everything each week, and you know, giving a giving the club rugby a, a space to sort of have it have its day in the sun. And I think you know, for uh, for the work that he's done over the past year, he, he deserves a shout out. Mm-hmm. And to highlight the younger players coming through too that may one day play for Ulster as well and it's good to finish the podcast on a, on a positive given <laughs> given what we've been talking about for most of it um, next week we're going to have we've been going through some mini reflections of the season I suppose but we're going to do a bit more of a review show and get some listener questions in there too so if there's anything you want to ask or know more about or discuss uh, just give us a tweet at Belltel Rugby and remember to pick up a paper Belfast Telegraph or go on belfasttelegraph.co.uk to catch up on all the news views and analysis of everything rugby and until then thank you very much for listening see you later